there was a series of events that had taken place, and through this series of events, Pat is out of a job and unable to find work. Not for lack of trying. Kids are sick, and uh, the cars quit, and the mortgages due, and financially just sort of really at the end of the rope, right? And Pat prays to God for provision. If only I could win the weekly lottery, all my financial troubles would be solved. I could get medical help for the kids, and I'd have plenty of money to give to the church for God's ministry, and I could get the car fixed and all of that stuff. And so week after week after week, Pat is praying that he will win the lottery. And week after week after week, Pat watches on Friday night, and the numbers come and doesn't win. And the situation becomes more and more critical. Going to lose the home, kids aren't getting better, cars rusting out in the driveway. Finally, in a last desperate attempt to hear from God, Pat fast for two days, laid out on the floor in hours of beseeching, and in the final hours of desperate prayer, clearly hears from God. Pat, work with me here. Buy a ticket. (laughs) See, you thought this was going to be serious. Now, don't go out and buy lottery tickets, okay? I don't think that is a prayer that God is going to honor. But every believer has been in Pat's situation, And without necessarily the humorous conclusion, and quite often without the humorous conclusion. But in fact, in some ways, if we're praying correctly, we actually live our whole lives in this constant state. One or more or many of our prayers at the time are going, it seems, unanswered as we pray. And I don't mean frivolous or selfish prayers about lotteries, but even sincere unselfish, scripturally-based prayers that seemingly would be aligned with God's will go unanswered. And not just for a few days or for a few weeks, but for years upon years. Prayer for the salvation of family members, prayer for the curing of a painful illness, prayer for the restoration of marriages or to beat addiction or for the success of ministry, prayers that we think would be after God's own heart. We think, does God not clothe the grass and the flowers of the field, though they labor not, says in Luke? So why does one person get a job through amazing circumstances and other person can't even find the most basic work in their field, in their career, right? And are not five sparrows sold for just two pennies, and yet not one of them is forgotten by God? We know that to be true. So why is it that one child is healed of their illness while another passes away, even in the very same congregation? We know that God hates divorce. He says so in Malachi. So why are some marriages healed by the prayer of even just one praying spouse and other marriages still end with whole families praying for that marriage? These are some of the really hardest questions of prayer. When our prayers are not answered or at least not answered in the way that we anticipate, we wonder, is God listening? Does God not care about us? Is there something wrong with me? Am I doing it wrong? Uh, Is there something I need to learn? An unanswered prayer can cause confusion and even a crisis of faith. What are we to think when God is silent in the face 
a very sincere, very important needs and prayers in our life. That's what we hope to look into today. Just uh, And I realize this is a huge topic and one sermon won't do it. I might raise a few more questions than I answer. Uh, but we're going to look at this at this question today and uh, see what is what it is that we can discern from and what we can learn from the silence of God uh, in our life of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, as we go into your word and as we consider your scripture and consider this topic, I pray that uh, you would give me the right um, attitude and stance before you and before this congregation in terms of this topic that and I pray and I, I ask that you would bring us comfort because this is a topic that can cause confusion and can cause hurt. And so, Lord, uh, we will need your comfort through this. And at the same time, Lord, that uh, you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would be introspective to understand what it is that you are maybe saying through silence and that we need to learn on our part to understand your character and your nature, to know uh, how we should respond and what we should be doing during the times of silence. And Lord, that, uh, yeah, we just commit this this message and this series to you on prayer, that we would grow in our prayer life, that we would become a more deeply, passionately praying people, and that by it we would be transformed and you would be glorified and your kingdom would expand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we're in that in that area of prayer where it seems like God is silent, we at least are not in uncharted territory and we're certainly not alone. There are about 650 prayers in Scripture. If you go through the Bible, you can find about 650 prayers or times when people are distinctly speaking to God and asking. And uh, they're prayed by God's chosen people. They're prayed by his prophets. They're prayed by his kings, by his apostles, even his son. And neither in all of these 650 prayers are all of them answered. And so we are in the company of Abraham and Moses and David and Paul. And in some respects, even Jesus, when it comes to the answers of our prayers or the apparent unanswer or the silence of God. Abraham, for instance, prayed for an heir in Genesis 15, and that prayer was answered with children. But Abraham also prayed that Ishmael would be the heir of promise. He prayed that in Genesis 17, and that prayer was not answered, because it was not God's plan that Ishmael would be the son of promise. Moses, and we could spend weeks just with Moses and his (laughs) praying to God, but Moses prayed probably most famously that God would spare the current nation of Israel and all of those people and not destroy them. In Numbers 14, and God answered that prayer for Moses, but Moses also prayed that he might enter into the land of Canaan in Deuteronomy 3, but God did not answer that prayer because of Abraham, or Moses' sin. And David prayed for guidance and revelation in 1 Samuel 23, and it was granted to David, but David fasted and pleaded for the life of his very own son in 2 Samuel 12, And God did not deliver his son. And we could go on through the prophets, or we could consider Job, and and as you go through, you would find all the same results, prayers answered and prayers unanswered, or sometimes just silence. And you say, okay, but that's the Old Testament, Paul. You said a lot last week about how much Jesus accomplished for us in prayer, that Jesus came um, and... uh, you know, did the redemptive work that was required and uh, that uh, maybe this, 
you know, all the redemptive work of Jesus wasn't in full effect yet in the Old Covenant, and it's supposed to be different now with all the bold promises of Jesus given to us and the cross behind us and everything that he did. But then if we look in the New Covenant and in the New Testament, then after the cross, Peter prayed for the resurrection of Tabitha and was answered, and she was raised, and Paul raised a man named Eutychus in Acts 20. But Paul also prayed that the thorn or the sickness or the pain in his flesh be removed. He prayed three times for it. I'm not sure Paul was used to not having his prayers answered. Three times he said, I've prayed for this God. What's going on? And it was not removed. And Paul prayed for the salvation of the Jews, his, the nation of his people. In Romans 10.1, but there was no massive messianic revival of Israel. Judaism is alive and well today, even though Paul worked tirelessly and prayed, prayed for the salvation of his people. And Paul prayed for the unity and health of his churches. But we know from the same letters that Paul wrote where he was praying for that unity and health in his churches, the struggles that he prayed against were still plaguing those churches. And so there were prayers of Paul that just never seemed to materialize the way he hoped they would. Jesus even prayed for the unity of those who believed in him in John 17. And I'm not sure how well that prayer was answered even in that decade, let alone all the following centuries of the church in terms of the unity of those that follow Christ. And Jesus prayed that the trial of the cross not be required of him, and yet it was. Although his prayer was answered in another way than he was hoping at that time in the garden. It says in Hebrews 5 that his prayer actually was answered, but I don't think quite the way he was expecting hope and hoping for humanly. And so there's, there's some comfort in this at least, I think, as we go through Scripture and we see that, that God's people have prayed to God and greater men and greater women than us have cried out to God and not received the answer necessarily that they hoped for or any answer at all. And in some of those cases, we can see it's for the same reasons that some of our prayers perhaps are not answered. And so what is the purpose of God's silence? Or what is the purpose of God's delay? What does his silence teach us? And, and how should it instruct our understanding of God? And as I said, I'm aware I'm not going to answer every question today, and it may even raise some new ones. But we're going to continue the discussion sort of as the weeks go on and as we study this more. And so don't be afraid to ask more questions after the services or or through the weeks ahead or send me an email or whatever because we want to really dig into what is going on here in prayer. And this is a big one, this whole idea of God's silence or the appearance of unanswered prayer. And God's silence has the power, I think, and this is where the main message of today is, is that God's silence has the power to inform and transform our understanding of prayer and God's nature. In other words, we're to use the silence that God grants us for our own introspection and our own understanding and our own learning, that he's not silent without a purpose. And I think that purpose of his silence and his patience with us is for us to press in more closely to him and to have a deeper understanding ourselves of what's going on in our prayers and in our life as we approach his throne. The first thing we want to know from the silence or understand from the silence is that God's silence is not a lack of care. And that there's a danger of going there when prayers are unanswered or, or we hear nothing from God that, that somehow he doesn't care. And God has always shown his concern for his people Hosea 11, 7-9, I'll use as an example, but there are dozens of verses like this in the Old Testament. 
He says, My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And so God is saying, I get it that you're disobedient, and I really shouldn't be feeling this way, but my heart can't resist still loving you. And so I won't pour out the wrath, and I won't come in that way because I'm compassionate for you. And so don't think that his silence is because he doesn't care. And he has shown us the compassion of his face in Jesus, and it's a tear-streaked face, and we know the weeping that Jesus did for his people, the weeping that he did at funerals and at gravesides and for his people Israel. In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus is standing there outside Jerusalem looking over it from Mount of Olives most likely and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And so God shows us through Jesus his compassionate face that he is not an uncaring God, that he does suffer with us. And in fact, he's joined us in our suffering, that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit, perfect in heaven and apart from all of the sin and the suffering and the despair of earth, uh, could have just walked away from it all. But Jesus actually joined us became flesh to join us in suffering through his life and ultimately on the cross. And so whatever it is that we're going through, God is compassionate for it, he cares about it, and he has joined us in it through the loss of his own son. And so we don't need to use our prayers to try to convince God to care. God does care. He cares more than we do. What we need to ask, and sometimes perhaps need to ask in the silence, is how can we be a part of his caring? What is, what is our role in joining in the caring and the compassion of God? And you could read the book of James as an example there. As James spells out a lot about what it means in the Christian life to show the mercy and the caring of God in how you live out your Christian life for others. Secondly, God's silence may indicate that we do have hindrances. And this is just the reality that we have to deal with. Uh, God spells it out in his word that there are things that hinder his relationship with us. In Isaiah 59.2, he says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sins separated us from God and caused him to hide himself from us. And yes, Jesus has torn the veil, as we talked about last week, and he has removed the barrier, and Jesus has granted us his spirit, but sin is still can be a hindrance. 1 John 3.22 says, And whatever we ask and receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And so part of the silence of God can be an opportunity for us to assess our own lives and assess our own spiritual condition and ask ourselves whether we really are keeping his commandments or whether we really are have the attitude of compassion that he has and that we are doing what pleases him. And so in order to 
press through this silence of God, we have to t- take an attitude of repentance. Romans 8.1 says, There's now therefore no condemnation for those who are us in Christ Jesus. As we repent and we confess our sins, we can go boldly into the presence of Christ and into the presence of God. Hebrews 8.12 says, I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And so if you're experiencing that dryness in your prayer life or that silence from God, it may be that you just have to go to God and repent in humility and acknowledge that your mind is not aligned with his mind and your ways are not aligned with his ways and give over those things. And when I say that, I don't say that to say that it's your sin that's necessarily causing the suffering of other people or that uh, God is not working in the lives of other people because your prayers are weak because of your sin. And I I don't even want to go down that path because there's a whole misinterpretation of the understanding of prayer that comes from that, that somehow your suffering or somebody else's suffering would all just go away if, if you took care of your sin and then God would be able to answer that prayer or you would have enough faith and if you had enough faith then that would get solved. And that's the wrong way of exegeting those passages. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying and what God does say is that our sin hinders our relationship with him. And he wants us to have a relationship with him that is pure and undefiled. And if we try to fool ourselves or convince ourselves that somehow um, you know, God is going to overlook our iniquities or overlook our sin or overlook our disobedience and then still uh, you know, have this great relationship with us where our spirit is communing so closely with his spirit, then we're kidding ourselves. He says, you can grieve my spirit. And if my spirit is grieved, you're grieving me and you're hindering your prayers. And so we have to examine the reality that there could be sin, unconfessed sin in our life or disobedience that is hindering our prayers. But that's not necessarily bad news. The good news is you just have to confess it. God is there ready to return. Have you returned to him? Just confess your sin and see if that doesn't you know, free up your prayer life. Secondly, there could be fear or doubt. Fear and doubt are sort of both expressions of the same thing, which is lacking faith. We can doubt the character of God. We could doubt if he truly cares, or we can doubt his goodness. Or maybe we start to doubt his intentions towards us, or his power to affect change. Uh, James 1, 6-7 says, When we ask, or him who asks, let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive from the Lord. And so that's the idea of doubt is just sort of a lack of faith that God really cares or what he intends or that he has this power. And even in his own hometown, Jesus was hindered from pouring out the blessing of God through his miracles because of the doubt of the people. Matthew uh, 13, 58 says uh, that uh, Jesus couldn't do very many miracles there in his hometown because the people just had so little faith. And so if if the lack of faith of the people in Jesus' hometown could actually prevent Jesus or hinder Jesus from doing miracles, then our doubt and our skepticism about God's motives and God's power and his care for us can probably hinder our prayers. I mean, if you can stop Jesus from doing a miracle just by doubt, you know, then, then doubting in your prayers or being skeptical of the intent of God can definitely hinder prayer. But perhaps more common than doubt is fear. And so we can also pray, and we can have a lot of faith perhaps in our prayer, supposedly in our minds have faith, trusting in God, and yet when we leave our prayers, we continue to live in fear. 
And so we've prayed and we've given it over to God and yet we live in fear for the future or fear for the situation and and we're constantly living in a state of fear that somehow something horrible is going to happen. And that's not to say you'll never have any worry or anxiety at all, but that after prayer and in the presence of God and with the promises of God and trusting in His care for us and His intentions towards us, then fear should no longer control you or have an undue influence on your decisions. You can't claim to trust God on one hand and then live your life in a state of fear on the other because fear is a lack of faith. If you trust God, then you can't live in fear. And if you're living in fear, then you're not really trusting God. And so the silence of God and the time that you have before God when it seems like he has nothing to say to you is time for you to take assessment of how you're living your life and what trust you're actually putting in him and setting aside your fear. And so in that silence, you can pray for God to grant you a greater faith in him and replace your fear with confidence. Or there could be unforgiveness in your life. Mark 11.25 says, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. There could be broken relationships in your life. 1 Peter 3.7 says that husbands are to live with their wives in a considerate way so that nothing will hinder their prayers. Remember, I'm talking about things right now in this time when you have this period in your life where your prayers seem unanswered or God seems silent and you're not hearing from him. These are hindrances to your prayer. These are things that in the silence we can be using that opportunity of the silence to examine ourselves and consider these things. Is there sin? Is there doubt? Is there unforgiveness? Is there a broken relationship somewhere? Is there someone before I go to God, uh, to his altar, Offering my gift to him. Is there someone that I remember that has someone against me, as it says in Matthew 5.23, where maybe I just need to not press in quite so much in prayer, but I need to go work some things out with some people in my life because my prayers are being hindered by the broken relationships that are around me. And God wants me to get those relationships sorted out so that my prayers to him are unhindered. The silence of God could be an indicator for us that we've not been good bearers of his name among other people, that maybe we have judged other people or we have wounded other servants or other brothers and sisters, and that he dearly loves them and he wants us to make things right with them. And so we hear silence until we get that sorted out in our hearts and with them. God's silence is a period of opportunity for us to go and make amends and to forgive others so that there's no hindrance of God's blessing towards us. Another thing that can hinder us is idols. Ezekiel 14.3 says, The Son of Man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? So God says, look, look at my people. They have all these idols. They have all these things that they're worshiping ahead of me. So many things in their life that they care about are way more than, than me. And he asked the rhetorical question, should, should I let them ask me anything at all? Should I even listen? Should I even let them come and inquire of me? God's silence may be an indicator that he's been displaced from the central place in your life. That anything and everything is competing for your attention out there right now and our hearts are easily prone to wander and we can put our trust and our hope in the silliest of things like some late night TV promises or the latest diet or 
you know, our looks or uh, our spouses or money. And when, you know, when we're not getting by on our looks or we're not getting the attention and feeling as good as we should from our looks or we're not getting it from our money or we're not feeling satisfied because of our job, then all of a sudden, you know, we start, those things start to let us down. And then what do you know? We turn to God in prayer and we start asking him to fulfill that need or to solve that problem that my looks can't solve and my, uh, you know, my popularity can't solve it and my money can't solve it. But, you know, okay, so now I'll go and I'll pray and I'll ask God if he can solve it. But it's like, yeah, but he was like fifth on the list. And so he's wondering because of all these idols in your life that are way ahead of him whether he should answer at all. Because you come to him in prayer, but your popularity and your job and your money and everything else you trusted in all those weeks and months ahead of time are all way ahead of him. And now finally you're coming to him in prayer to solve a problem that none of those things can fix. And he's asking the question, are there idols in your life? Are you finally coming to me now, fifth or sixth or seventh in line? Should I let you inquire of me at all? And so the silence of God is an opportunity for us to consider whether he is really first in our life, whether, in fact, the things that we are maybe even praying for is the very thing that has displaced God. And I include family and health and provision in those things. Right? Are we so in love with our health and our success and our family and our middle-class lifestyle and everything being good that we go to God in prayer to restore that good, healthy, middle-class, comfortable life? And God's saying it's that good, healthy, middle-class, comfortable, safe life that is the God in your life. <laughs> That's re- why I'm silent. You're asking me to restore the idol. Of course he's not going to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not going to answer our needs, but we have to be careful that God is coming first. And then we're not worshiping our own comfort or our own popularity or our money and that we're actually praying to God to replace the idol that has displaced him. The silence of God may only be broken when we realize that we've put another thing in our life ahead of him. And we need to put him back on the throne in our life and put him first. Another thing that can hinder our prayers is greed. Proverbs 21, 13 says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. That's pretty clear. Or as James puts it in James 4, 3, he says, When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And so there's a very real reality here in terms of the compassion of God for the poor and the compassion of God for, and not just the poor financially, but maybe the poor relationally or the poor emotionally. That God has a compassion for those who are lacking. And when we close our ears to those who need from us, maybe need us emotionally or need us relationally or need us financially or need us to fill up some lack in their life or to help them with some lack in their life, when we close our ears to them, then God closes his ears to us. When we live our life for our own gain to the exclusion of others, and when we withhold from God what he has first given us, then we can't expect God to be listening attentively or acting quickly on our behalf. His silence may be a warning that he will not provide more because we've already been misusing what he's already supplied. And to the contrary, when we are faithful to God in meeting the needs of others and in serving in his ministry, then his blessings are not hindered. 
Malachi 3.10 gives us the hope of the other side of that coin. Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, or there may be provision, let me put it that way, for my people. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. And so God says, my blessing's there waiting for you when you start to bless, when you start to give back what I have provided for you already, then the blessings will flow out so much that there won't be room enough to store it. And so don't be miserly with the gifts and with what God has given you. He's given you time and he's given you relationships and he's given you money and he's, he's given you the opportunity to serve. And so don't be miserly with those things and then go to God and wonder why he's not answering. Because he's already provided for you and he's wondering what you're going to do with what he's provided. Those are hindrances to prayer that God may be teaching us in silence. And by his silence, as we consider those hindrances, sort of move to the, the therefore or to the, the, the what does that imply then, by his silence, we have opportunity then, having examined those hindrances, to learn and be transformed during those times of silence. You may remember a man called Job. And Job carried on a pretty one-sided rant with God for a while, demanding answers from God, um, about his situation. And when God finally spoke out of the silence, Job basically got taken to school by Job, or by God. And verses, or chapters 38 to 41 especially of, of Job. And after God, after the silence ended and Job had finished his ranting and, and God finally ends his silence and speaks, Job quickly repents and probably looked back on the weeks of silence that God had granted him and wished he had used those weeks a little better. Because the weeks of silence were nothing compared to the time when God started to speak for Job. And so if God is silent right now, the lesson I take from Job is use his silence wisely. Because there will come a time when he will speak again and we want what he says to be not what he said to Job. Because he took him to school on his arrogance and on his presumption of what God was doing in the silence. And so by his silence, we have opportunity to learn and be transformed. Let's not be like Job, and let's learn our lesson in the silence. By God's silence, we may come to understand that God is not an accomplice to our work. God and his gospel is the work. And very often when we go in prayer, we think that God is somehow supposed to be accomplice to the things that we're doing in our life. And so the silence is an opportunity for us to get that reversed and understand that God's not an accomplice to what we're doing, but we're an accomplice to what he's doing. And God's silence gives us the opportunity to know how we can be a part of God's will rather than asking God to accomplish our will. That was one of the things Job had to learn. Secondly, God's silence prompts us to reset our values to kingdom values. We live in a society that is far from silent. We are bombarded day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute with false messages that stir up in us false cravings of what life should offer us and what our husband or wife should be doing for us and what our employer owes us and how we compare with other people on our street and what kind of car we should drive or where our self-worth is found. And so there is a noisy, loud, incessant world out there that is bombarding us daily with false messages and false values. And in comparison to that noise of the world, God's silence should drive us to his scriptures and to his word where we will find the world's values pale in comparison. 
In other words, God's silence in that silent, quiet time in our prayer closet is an opportunity for us to reset our values from the noise of the world's values to God's values. And in aligning our values with God's values, begin to hear from God. Because God's values are so different from the world's values. Our prayer in that quiet time and in that silence before God what we should be doing is we should be resetting ourselves and setting aside the false lies and untrue values of the world and resetting our values to kingdom values and resetting the world's agenda on our life to God's agenda on our life. The other thing that we can learn and we can use the silence for, the third thing, is that God often prefers to make us godly through our prayer and obedience rather than intervene as God in answer to our prayers. We pray and we ask that God would intervene and be God in our life and God's quietness and maybe what we need to hear from God is that he would, rather than intervene as God, he would rather make us godly. But that's not necessarily the answer we're looking for. We'd rather just God kind of step in and do stuff for us, not transform us to be the people that are doing things, but just do things for us and God's not normally working like that. Even through Jesus, right? Jesus says, my food is to do the will of the Father. Or in John 5, he says, I can do nothing by myself. I can only do what I see the Father doing. And in Hebrews 5, 7 to 8, says that Jesus, through his ministry, prayed with loud cries and supplications to his Father, and he was heard, and that he learned obedience through suffering. And so as we experience the silence of God in our prayers, it's an opportunity to consider what transformation God is intending for us. And so that rather than us praying to God that he be God and intervene as God, that instead perhaps maybe he's working to make us godly. So that it's by our obedience and it's by our uh, acting uh, on his behalf that these prayers are answered. It's an opportunity to consider what transformation he has in store for us to become more Christ-like. God may be waiting for our repentance, you know, before changing the circumstances of our life we're praying for. He may be waiting for us to seek after the transformation into Christ-likeness to answer those prayers. And the reason I say that is because God's final purpose, and this is one of the things we need to learn perhaps in the silence as well, is that God's final purpose is not always to remove suffering, but to redeem it. Because let's be honest, when we're talking about unanswered prayer, and I know I'm running a bit long, but I've got to finish this. <laughs> when we're talking about unanswered prayer, we're often talking about trials and we're often talking about suffering of some sort. Those are the prayers that seem to go unanswered. Those are the times when we really notice God's silence, when there's a trial or when there's suffering of some sort. And our suffering, suffering that impacts others or hurts relationships or the consequences of poverty, all the different types of suffering that there could be. And it would seem that we are praying in God's will, knowing that God does not take joy in suffering. And so if we pray to end the suffering or heal the sickness or, or to uh, end the poverty or to do whatever, then it seems that we would be praying in God's will, knowing that God doesn't take joy in suffering. But there is a deeper and more mysterious purpose to suffering that kind of aligns with the deeper and mysterious purpose of prayer. And where I think suffering and prayer align is this. In both cases, I believe the answer is the same. God's purpose in suffering is not always to end it, but to redeem it. 
And so our prayers, therefore, should seek God's redemptive purpose in the trial rather than the end of the trial. That suffering or trials or the things that we're praying for are not always there, and our prayer for them is not always that they should go away, and it's not always God's intent they should go away, as we know from the thorn in Paul's flesh. But what we do know about suffering and what we do know about trials is that God intends to redeem them. Job's test, as an example of this redemption that I'm talking about, Job's test was a demonstration of glory to Satan and spiritual powers. Job didn't understand what was going on. He was suffering. He couldn't figure out why God was not removing his suffering. But Job didn't understand that God was redeeming that suffering by being a demonstration of his glory to Satan and to spiritual powers. And David's suffering was to cause repentance and to lean back into God. That God was redeeming the suffering of, J- of David to deepen his, David's relationship with God, which was the best possible thing for David. That the man born blind in John 9, who probably had a family that was praying for his eyesight his whole life, he was born blind and maybe didn't understand why God was silent on his suffering as a blind man. He finds out only later on when Jesus arrives that he was born blind for no other reason than to glorify God in that moment that Jesus could heal him and he could be a witness to the Pharisees. Paul's thorn was to keep him humble. Jesus' suffering was to learn obedience. Jesus' cross was to save the world. And so in the silence of God in the face of suffering or trials, when, when our prayers don't seem to be answered or God doesn't seem to be speaking to us, understand that there is a mystery in suffering and there is a mystery in prayer, and I think they're both the same, is that God is using them not necessarily to eliminate them, but to redeem them. That God is using suffering and he's using your leaning into him in prayer for redemptive purposes. God is in the business of redemption. He is accomplishing a greater purpose out of suffering that makes the cost of the suffering small in comparison to what it accomplishes. And you may have heard it before, but it's my best personal example and uh, it's the story of my dad and his Alzheimer's. And I couldn't understand the point of Alzheimer's <laughs> until I saw the love that my mom showed my dad while he was in the home and while he was at home. And what I saw was the people in my father's family and in our family and in his life who saw the love that my mom showed my dad with Alzheimer's. And I understood that there was a redemptive purpose to his suffering. That, as it says in Romans, we live to God and we die to God. So whether we live or die is to the glory of God. And my dad, in his suffering, regardless of our prayers, didn't matter what we were praying, regardless of our prayers, my dad, in his suffering, was maybe in that moment living the most glorious life for God. And that is so hard for us to understand. That is the mystery of suffering, and it's the mystery of prayer. And so as we have this silence, because it seems like silence when God doesn't answer that prayer. But he is accomplishing purposes that we can't comprehend. And sometimes we have this amazing glimpse when we look backwards in time. And I'll end here. When we as Christians look back in time, when we have the perspective of years or sometimes even decades, and we remember the prayers that we prayed and the things that we were asking God for, and we look back in time, what do we find? 
He was answering them. He was faithful. He was answering our prayers. We didn't think so in the moment, but he was. And there's this great quote. It says, faith is believing in advance what only makes sense in retrospect. And I find that's the reality of what we, ent- what we feel is the silence of God. But we need to have faith in advance for things that only make sense in retrospect. And you believers out there, you Christians out there, you know what I'm talking about. When we think about all the prayers we've prayed and all the times we felt God was silent, but then we have this awesome privilege of having that glimpse back in time and God shows us what he was doing, we kind of smack ourselves in the forehead and we realize he was answering prayer the whole time. And so I leave you with that. How to, res- how to deal with the silence when God seems to be silent. Remember the depth of his care his care personally and what we've seen in the life of Jesus and humble ourselves by rejecting our values and our desires and take advantage of the silence to remove any hindrance and examine your own motives and repent of any selfishness and ask God to reveal our hearts by his spirit, any resistance we have to obedience or to transformation. And the faster we learn what God is teaching, perhaps the faster our prayers will be answered and ask God to show us how we are to act in a godly way in the situation and search out God's will in redeeming the difficult circumstances rather than simply ending it, because God's in the business of redemption. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, and um, this is such a huge topic, and I knew I was biting off a lot today, Lord. I just pray that it would settle in our hearts, that we would have an understanding that you are, you are sometimes truly silent, but you are never not answering our prayers. And so, Lord, help us to understand what you are teaching us in the silence, whether it's a hindrance on our part, whether it is a lack of understanding, whether it's misplaced values, whether it's just not being confident in your care and your compassion and your provision for us. Or, Father, not understanding that not all suffering and not all trial is meant to end, but it's meant to be redeemed and to look for how you are redeeming the suffering that we are in. Father God, you are good to us in so many ways. We cannot count them. We thank you that we have this privilege of prayer and that even when you're silent, you're never not answering. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.